New Year's Eve, December 31st. Perhaps there is no other day of the year that provokes me to stop and reflect. To ponder some of what has happened during the last 365 days. To ask myself a series of questions. What did I accomplish this year? For what am I most grateful? And as I look ahead, what am I most longing to receive, to do differently in the year that is about to start? On Friday afternoon, I decided to take my questions a step further and patterned after the daily examine, I googled yearly examine. And Google did not disappoint, as it led me immediately to a site with pages upon pages of questions, which if I took time to answer them all, could consume the entire weekend. As I read the invitation to invest the days between Christmas and New Year's, slowly working through a deck of questions that included, what are the most important events that happened to me in the last year? What are the greatest breakthroughs in any category of my life this past year? What has been my greatest struggle in my life? What has been my greatest and deepest loss? What has been the area that has most consumed my thinking, attention, focus? Where have I felt most vulnerable in my life? Naked, most exposed. And where have I most experienced the presence of God? And why? I find each of the questions extraordinarily helpful with some of them leading to reflections that brought about a sense of great joy and peace, and other questions leading to a touch of pain or a place of regret. And while many of the questions fill me with a sense of satisfaction at some level, the final question leaves me longing longing for more because no matter how often I have experienced God, no matter how present God seems to be in my life, I always, always long for more of God. What about you? Did you experience enough of God in your life over these last 12 months? you have enough of God in your life? 
Or are you too longing for more? The wonder or the fullness of what brought the wise men from the East, what is it that they were longing for the most as they made their journey to Jerusalem? What were they hoping to receive when they followed this star to the capital city? My favorite preacher, Barbara Brown Taylor, writes how the star was so bright that none of them could actually tell whether it was burning in the sky or in their own imaginations. But they were so wise that they knew it did not matter all that much. The point was something beyond them was calling them, and it was a tug that they had been waiting for their whole life. You know the tuck, the pull that leads you to suspect that there is more to life than what you are currently experiencing. Are you familiar with that pull? Barbara Brown Taylor suggests that the wise men were all eager for an excuse to get out of town, away from everything they knew how to manage and survive, out from under the reputations that they had built for themselves, the high expectations and the disappointing returns. I don't know about you, but I can relate well to wanting to escape the expectations that others have for me. And I want to escape even more the expectations I've placed on myself. Ones that are often unrealistically high, demanding more from me than I know is sensible, physically, spiritually, or emotionally. But whatever their reason was for following this star, we know that it led them to Jerusalem, where they ask where this child has been born, who is known as the king of the Jews. And when word of their arrival and the question they have asked reaches King Herod, we're told that King Herod and all of Jerusalem become filled with fear, frightened. And Herod then asks the most educated individuals in the palace where exactly the Messiah was to be born. And the scribes and the Pharisees do not disappoint. They know their scripture. They know what is written in the prophet Micah, where we read, But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will rule over all of Israel. The Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem, they tell their king. Herod then offers the information to his visitors, and we learn how scripture, as well as their willingness to follow a star, both are needed to guide the wise people to Bethlehem, where they find Mary, Joseph, and an infant, Jesus. Beloveds, I cannot begin to understand who God is or how God might be at work in my life 
without spending time studying scripture. Even if it's as simple as seeking to read a psalm a day, or the two or three verses that whoever penned a daily devotion that has captured my attention has written before me. Scripture is the place where our faith always begins, where our faith is revealed. But Scripture, it will never be enough for me to know where or how God is leading me. Like the wise people, I also need to pay attention to whatever it is that is pulling me, that is nagging at me, that is capturing my attention. A rainbow, a sign in nature that reminds me of how God keeps God's promises. A song that begs me to slow down. A feeling in my gut that pushes me to say something or to stand up for someone. A sense in my heart that opens me to embrace whatever change might be on the horizon. And whenever I feel God at work, whenever I see a sign that God might be at work, my task, just like the wise people, is try to figure out where God is leading by taking my next faithful step. The wise men allow this star and then a dream to guide their steps. The star leads them to Jerusalem. And then a dream leads them to avoid Jerusalem on their way home from Bethlehem. Rather than bringing a word to Herod about where it is that they have found Jesus as Herod requested them to do, the wise people left for their own country by another road. That's how our passage ends. They sidestep Herod. Herod's fear and his violent ways. Herod believes he is a king. It is the title that has been given to him by the Romans. But Herod is immediately filled with fear. When wise people come and ask where a child has been born, who is king of the Jews. My former professor, Stanley Hauerwas, notes how Herod's fear of this baby reveals the depth of his fragility. Herod's know that their positions require constant vigilance because any change may well make their insecure positions more insecure. Herod's rule in fear by employing fear as a means to secure power. Herod's ways of ruling are in stark contrast to the ways of this child who has been born in Bethlehem. The newborn king's most powerful tool is not violence, but love. His ways are not exclusion of the outcast, but embrace of all. Indeed, Epiphany reveals how his love and his embrace are for all people, including the Gentiles who the wise men represent. In the words of Malcolm Geit, in the incarnation Christ, 
in assuming human nature takes on, becomes involved in, visits and redeems the whole of humanity, and not just the chosen people to whose race and culture he belonged. In Jesus, God has actively chosen to become involved in, to visit and to redeem all of humanity and not just those who are part of the race or culture to whom he belonged. Beloveds, the fullness, this fullness, is how we got included. How we got included as recipients of Jesus' love and mercy and grace. And this message a message of good news for all the people, for all the people, will always be threatening for any person who has been tempted to believe that one's race or one's citizenship triumphs over God's divine imprint and all-encompassing love. The wise people understand how everything has changed. Everything has changed and will continue to change through a child who has been born king of the Jews. They also know how those in power will fiercely wield it against them for even suggesting that they change their deeply held convictions. It is why they choose to go home another way. And meanwhile, Herod reveals the depth of his depravity. The power fears grip. Such fear, Hauerwas explains, recognizes no limit because it draws its strength from death. Herod is so afraid. That if we continue to read in Matthew 2, we read how he later orders the killing of all of the children born in and around Jerusalem who are under the age of two. The time it is estimated that it would take for the wise people to reach Israel. All children are killed. Haralas rightly notes how Jesus is born into a world in which children are killed and continue to be killed to protect the power of tyrants. A world in which children are killed to protect the power of tyrants. As of last Thursday, more than 8,663 Palestinian children have been killed in Gaza. 8,663 children. And my wise professor then suggests that those who would follow and worship Jesus are a challenge to those who would kill children. 
I wonder, what would it take for people of faith to be considered a challenge today? For people of faith to be known for not going along as if everything is okay, but to instead sidestep the world's power and always go home another way. What would it take for us to remove power from any Herod who insists that killing innocent people is the right path to peace. Any Herod who claims that there is not enough in the world for whoever the other might be. Any Herod who believes there is one particular tribe or land or nation that God wants to bless more than all others. Any Herod who allows children to be killed by senseless acts of gun violence over and over again without ever changing a damn thing. Beloveds, a new year. A whole new year is upon us. I don't know about you, but I have deep longings for what I want this year to hold for me. Whatever this year holds, I pray more than anything else that I know how to recognize a star, how to follow the stars that God places in our path. <coughs> And that wherever these stars lead, I pray that my faith in God, my trust in God's all-encompassing love, will guide me to live and to love, to speak and to act in ways that make a difference, a bold difference in this weary world that is in desperate need of rejoicing. What about you? Who? What? will you most 